Hello and welcome to the Yellow Vests and Golden Passports edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm actually in Axios HQ in Arlington, Virginia. I am joined in the New York studio by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. I am joined by Anna Shemansky. Hello. And most excitingly, we are all joined by my old portfolio colleague, Mr. Duff McDonald. Hello. Hello, Duff. Um, Duff just wrote an amazing piece about Sheryl Sandberg for the for the magazine known as Vanity Fair. He has written amazing books about McKinsey and about Harvard Business School. And we are going to talk a little bit about McKinsey and Slate Plus. We are going to talk a lot about Harvard Business School. We are going to talk about the Yellow Vest protests in France. We are going to talk about the yield curve and whether it has inverted and whether that even matters if it has. We are going to talk about so much stuff. It's going to be an awesome show, mainly because Duff is here, uh, because Duff is actually an expert on the kind of things that are really driving the news right now, especially in and around the monster world-spanning organization known as Facebook, which is, I don't know if you saw this, in a lot of trouble right now, especially from the UK. Um, We will talk a little bit about that coming up on Slate Money. So the news hook this week is that Damien Collins, who is a British MP, wound up sending the parliamentary sergeant-at-arms dressed up in tights, as far as I can make out, to the hotel room of this guy who had all of these secret emails um, from inside Facebook, which were sealed by a U.S. court, and the U.S. court was not allowing them to be made public. But Damien Collins made them all public. We had 250 pages of emails of watching Mark Zuckerberg try to strangle Vine at birth by refusing to allow its users to connect to their Facebook friends and that kind of stuff. It shows a pretty ruthless company. And Duff, you can trace this all back to basically what Sheryl Sandberg learned at Harvard Business School? (laughs) Well, that's what I tried to do in the Vanity Fair piece. I think, you know, that came out before this uh, dump of internal emails, but I think they just sort of reinforced the point. You know, this is a company that is saying a lot of things and doing a lot of things that are in complete contradiction to the things that they say and how, uh, you know, a modern the modern manager, MBA manager can uh, think that both things they can hold both positions uh, is to me sort of the interesting root of the problem, how you can. uh, make questionable moral judgments, uh, even as if you insist that you aren't. Yeah, that seems to be the root of a lot of the criticism of Facebook beyond the things that it's done, like in the leak we saw or in the papers we saw this week, uh, the privacy guru says, you know, we're going to be taking these Android call logs, which essentially mean they get phone numbers and private information of users that users didn't even know that they were giving away 
And they all agree, eh, it could be a PR disaster, but we're going for it anyway. And then in public, they're saying your privacy matters to us. You know, um, we care about your uh, personal information. So it's this sort of it's just sort of mm, lying hypocrisy. Is is that what they learn at Harvard or? I mean, I would say that what we're seeing is is kind of a case study of exactly what not to do. I manager. see what you did there, Anna. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, because both Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg have not been thinking of the long-term viability and life of this company with a lot of the decisions they have made. And I think if you can see how, frankly, investors have reacted, they're not reacting positively to this. And so I don't think this is, I don't necessarily think this is an example of managers behaving as they were taught to, I think it's quite the opposite. Well, I mean, Duff's, Duff's case here is you're basically saying, Duff, that they're not taught to care about like building a company which has a strong moral foundation and can last for decades thereon, and that they and that that's actually a gaping hole in the HBS curriculum. Well, yeah, one of the one of the points that comes up a lot in in uh, my book, The Golden Passport, is that ethics is an an afterthought uh, at HBS, and particularly and you know when the case method, the case method of teaching, uh, it's interesting. Almost every single alumnus of the school that I talk to uh, says it's a differentiating factor. It teaches them how to make uh, decisions effectively without perfect information and. You know, it's I believe them. But uh, I think one of the Achilles heels in the method is that by stressing that there's no one correct answer to any business situation, uh, you know, which on the one hand is true. You know, it's just like life. There's no one right answer all the time. But by stressing that fact in their case discussions, they've sort of left this gaping hole uh, in their graduates' minds where it's in in some situations, there is an answer that is more right than the others. And, uh, you know, time and time again, we see uh, graduates of the school go on to make really questionable decisions that they th- clearly had thought through in a different way and were satisfied with the own with their own articulation of the right course of action. And, and, and it's just sort of a moral uh, soft spot underneath the whole method. So I want to ask Emily about a particular aspect of this, which is that both Emily and um, Kara Swisher have written columns saying that Sheryl Sandberg is sort of taking it in the neck for a lot of the Facebook missteps, including from people like you, Duff, Um, And you're saying, like, this can be traced back all the way to her experience at Harvard Business School. And that at the same time, Mark Zuckerberg, who did not go to business school and famously dropped out of Harvard as an undergrad, um, is is kind of getting a pass. Um, so I guess my my question for Emily is like, do you think is that what Duff is saying here about like the kind of amorality that gets taught at HBS is legitimate, or do you think that this is also there's a kind of weird way of just like ganging up on Cheryl going on? Um, so I'll take that in two parts. First, I definitely think there is a ganging up on Cheryl Sandberg. I'm not <clears throat> defending her actions, which include 
helping bring in an opposition research firm to basically spread smears about George Soros jumping on the conservative bandwagon, uh, anti-Semitic bandwagon or whatever. I'm not defending Sheryl Sandberg, but I mean, you even see, I think there was a headline a few days ago that was like, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's the only one who can save Facebook or um, uh, never mind his hoodie. This was an actual headline two days ago. Never mind his hoodie. Mark Zuckerberg actually knows what he's doing. I'm slightly paraphrasing, but that was essentially it. Well, <laughs> Sheryl Sandberg because, is because portrayed. the hoodie. If you just looked yes. at the hoodie, <laughs> you never think hoodie. that he knew what he was doing. But right. So there's this tendency right now, I think, to portray him. I mean, people are definitely criticizing him, but he's being portrayed sort of like this hapless nerd who wasn't paying attention, while Sheryl Sandberg's this like con- conniving bee who you know is is not who you think she is. There was actually a headline in Vanity Fair that said right. something to that effect. So this is oh, she's so no saint. A... That was the headline. Um, So this is the tendency in Silicon Valley to really value men, particularly men like Zuckerberg, who dropped out (laughs) of Harvard um, over women who are tend to be more uh, seen as more dispensable and less inherently smart and more like, you know, hardworking like Hillary Clinton. And then for Duff's Duff's piece, I didn't I didn't think Duff's piece uh, was one of those pieces. It was like a very interesting explanation for how Sheryl Sandberg came to act the way she does. And um, most of the products of HBS are are men who have, as as Duff's pointed out in his work, done a lot, (laughs) have laid waste to a lot of sectors of the economy, essentially. So um, I don't think it's in that in that vein, really. I mean, I I, think I I definitely think you're right that I do think gender is at play here to a certain extent. I mean, I think part of it is also that Cheryl Sandberg is just quite, quite famous. And so I think that is that is also part of it. But I do think there's a way where she is often criticized for being like a perfectionist. She's criticized for being hardworking mm-hmm. in a way that I find bizarre because the men in Silicon Valley are just lionized for those same qualities. And I'm not saying this to say, I agree, I think what Facebook has done and has been revealed to have been done has been pretty awful. So I'm not saying that, that she doesn't deserve criticism. I mean, she probably deserves to be fired. But there does seem to be a tone to the criticism that's a little different than what we've seen when men have been criticized. Mm-hmm. So the way I view it is that in Facebook in particular, there has been this long-standing understanding that Mark Zuckerberg is the product guy. He comes up from like the tech and product side of things and is creating this amazingly viral product website and then app that everyone on the planet is spending their lives on. And then Sheryl Sandberg is the sort of monetization engine. And it's Sheryl who basically sells all of those billions of users' data to advertisers and invades their privacy and basically, um, you know, does the kind of things that people really hate Facebook for in terms of um, privacy violations. And it's for that reason that she is largely being blamed because what, you know, what people are criticizing is not so much the product itself in terms of the consumer-facing product, but it's the product in terms of the advertising product, which is entirely Cheryl's purview. But I think if we learned one thing from if we learned one thing from these emails, it's that Mark Zuckerberg is personally fully on board with this and just as bought into 
that side of the business as, as Cheryl is. Yeah, and I, I would say one more thing that Facebook's also being criticized for its poisonous effect on democracies across the world, you know, its role in Myanmar, in our election, in Brexit. Um, and uh, as the product genius who spoke so, um, who was so enraptured by connecting the world, it seems like Zuckerberg, for all his product smarts, totally missed this like very poisonous, awful effect that hit the software he created. He created a monster and he couldn't see it. Also, I just feel like if you read about the early days of Facebook, that company was pretty amoral from the beginning. Just saying. And, <laughs> like, and, and, and you know, in response to the, the part about beating up on Cheryl, you know, I think, uh, you know, I personally don't I, I, I dole out the criticism. Uh, I'm gender blind. I'll go after anyone who I think is. <laughs> has dropped the ball. And I think that the number two person at Facebook uh, is just as um, viable a target as the number one. You know, it, as you guys just said, like I, wa- I was writing about HBS, so I didn't really have much to say about Zuckerberg in the context of that piece. But I don't really have sympathy for someone saying, uh, you know, oh, you're just doing this because she's a woman it's like now it's because she's the number two person at Facebook. Uh, if it were someone else, I'd have gone after him in exactly the same way. You know, she's just she's Jeff Skilling, the second coming of Jeff Skilling, HBS to McKinsey to uh, uh, wherever uh, she, you know, her stops along the way where we look back and say, oh, OK, so the things that you learned at these credentialing institutions uh, that are supposedly held in such high regard Uh, are not quite the things that we thought you were learning. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The difference maybe between Sandberg and Skilling would be Sandberg. She wasn't, I mean, maybe doing anything illegal. She was just pursuing profit above all else. And isn't that precisely what you learn at Harvard well, Business School? I would also say the difference between Sandberg and Skilling is that Skilling was a sociopath. That, that but, too. I don't think she's a sociopath. Yeah, I don't think she's a sociopath. Uh, yeah. So, sure, we, we can draw bright lines of legal, non-legal. But to me, a lot of the FTC stuff and the regulatory stuff, which just doesn't have the teeth of law behind, but we're supposed to be relying on uh, the kind of enforcement that we promise not to do that again. Oops, we did it again. Like, if that's not illegal, it should be. So the way that these guys are acting uh, in pursuit of money above all else, to me, is just as questionable. You know, when remember when they um, the Brian Acton from WhatsApp quit and he sort of, uh, you know, threw out uh, a sort of uh, an awakening on the privacy issues. And the guy, David Marcus at Facebook, responded, you know, it's kind of distasteful. We made you a billionaire. You know, how could you say that? It's like, well, clearly you just revealed what motivates you and what your what your principles are based around. You know, the guy sold a company, made a fortune, then said, I don't want to be involved with this. There's nothing shameful about that decision at all. 
That's a really good point. So your your book, Duff, is called The Golden Passport precisely because you find these graduates. And, and Sandberg went to, as you said, not only to HBS, but also to McKinsey. And you find these HBS McKinsey types all over the world making a huge amount of money. Um, Sandberg can add to her list of credentials, of course, um, a stint at the U.S. Treasury Department, um, a stint at Google. Uh, you know, she became a billionaire at Facebook. She had political ambitions, so I th- although I suspect that those are on the back burner right now. Um, what is it about HBS and McKinsey in particular that undergirds that kind of a career? Well, at both of them, HBS, when you walk in the door, and McKinsey uh, relentlessly, uh, they are vocally of the opinion that they are the world's leaders and that they are some of the most talented group. McKinsey has called itself the most talented collection of individuals the world has ever seen, which just raises the question of do you people even know what uh, talent is? Uh, and you know, yeah, I can think of sports teams, which ugh. probably you know, or artists, count. or scientists, or uh, you know, uh, all the things that require actual talent. And <laughs> you know, it's funny. I I was on a flight yesterday, and I I belatedly read uh, Taleb's Skin in the Game, and it's an amazing book. And he's he talks in there about how uh, you know the world is is sick of. Uh, self-appointed, uh, um, uh, the crowd that knows what's right for everybody else. And, you know, he goes into the stuff about, uh, oh, everybody's about solving income inequality and structural inequality, but yet all your kids are still going to these same credentialing institutions. So it's all just talk. Yeah. And I think and this, what, is, and this is exactly the point that, that our previous guest Anand Giridharas makes in 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 his book as well. That like these are skill. Like the idea is that these skills kind of read across all parts of the economy and the world. When in fact they're narrower than that, and they really don't apply to areas like to take Anand's you know book in particular, philanthropy. Yeah, and it's just it's it's easy to be an expert on things from a remove, you know. That's what the the modern uh, manager and the modern management consultant are, uh, which are people who uh, are appointed experts in something uh, 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 that they've never actually done. And so the new CEO of Ford, this guy Hackett, you know, came in to run a venerable car company after having run a furniture company and a sports team or a sports like program. And you're like, who thought that was a great idea? I mean, maybe Anna can explain the logic there, but like, where did this, like, it has, have we now just completely internalized this idea that management skills are this broad thing which can be read across any kind of organization and you don't need any kind of real domain expertise? I wouldn't say that that is universal, although I would say that that is obviously far more common than it was, say, 30 years ago. That there has been a sense of management as becoming a little bit more of a science and the idea that you can use a lot of the same techniques and ideas across different industries and that works with 
sometimes, sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, I, I think there it can be some truth to it in the sense that I, I do think that there are best practices that and also certain skills that are definitely transferable across industries. But I do also think that you can definitely run into trouble when people try to run a company the exact same way as they ran a different company. And the, it's just the industries don't allow that. So I I, I I think the management consultant, the, the the rise of the management consultant has been both positive and negative. I, I do. I don't necessarily think that it's all a horrible thing, though. I, I will just like push back a little bit on that. Like, I, I don't necessarily think McKinsey is simply a force for evil. I think that they produce a lot of like really excellent research. <laughs> I think that there are a number of companies that they've worked quite well with. There's also companies that they've worked with that have been a disaster. I also kind of think the same thing with HBS. I I don't necessarily think that everyone who comes out of HBS is someone who has, you know, very, very little of an ethical core or is never even critical of the methods. I guess maybe I'm a little biased here because I know so many HBS grads and almost every HBS grad that I know is like kind of thinks the case study is a little bit of bullshit. So I, I guess I just think that the depiction here is maybe a little overly broad. Actually, speaking of case studies, I, I heard an interview I think you did with Reuters, where you talk about how the case studies are signed off on by the companies themselves and basically are an, a PR exercise for the for these companies. I mean, if you look at it one way. Yeah, the you know, it, there there's a whole host of issues with the subject matter of what they learn. Right. They're all um, uh, positive. They all uh, give the illusion of uh, foresight. The CEO is hero. Uh, Overlock CEO's hero, uh, and uh, you know the 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 studies are written about the companies that fund the case uh, research program. So you know the main benefit that that students claim they get out of it is the sort of dialogue that comes in class and sort of the ability to think on your feet. But you know, going back to your earlier point, Felix, I think that I think where we ran into trouble was a little more than thirty years ago. It was it was post war. When America was triumphant and sort of the finance function uh, pushed to the head of the of the crowd in in the managerial realm. Uh, And we started, uh, you know, whereas before it was just like any other support function for the enterprise. And we started uh, giving the money guys the keys to the kingdom. And the modern CEO is just as likely to have sort of come out of a finance background uh, even if it's you know corporate or industrial, then the product side, and the reason that a lot of people tend to think that they can uh, run different companies in different industries is because, by and large, the finance function varies way uh, you know much less uh, be, from one company to the next than say uh, you know uh, product development. So what happened is right. we've we, we've let the money guys. Um, uh, start making decisions that maybe they shouldn't be making. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So 
there is a famous financier, um, alumnus of Rothschild's bank in France, who looked at the economics of the country and said, what you need is a good, like, technocratic solution to all of this. He swept the election, became president. He created this brand new party, which suddenly dominated the parliament. And he had the entire country at his feet. He could do what he wanted with it. And oh my God, does he seem to have screwed it up. There are protests on the streets. He wanted to raise gas taxes by not a huge amount. Um, I was just doing the math on this, that um, gas prices in France were about $5.50 a gallon. He wanted to raise them by about 12 cents. So not a massive increase. But um, yeah, like we had... We had these huge yellow vest protests. Like all all motorists in in France have to have these, you know, yellow high vis vests in the back of their cars, and they everyone just sort of streamed out onto the streets. There were protests. There were kind of riots. Buildings went up in flames. Um, they spread to Brussels, and Macron's popularity just like imploded. He has a popularity rating of like twenty percent or something, and. I, I'm fascinated by how he can go from like hero to zero so quickly. Well, I mean, first he he cut taxes on on rich people in the country, and then he raised the gas tax. I guess the the gas tax wasn't his doing; it was the previous administration's part of a strategy. And it looks like she's yeah. So just dying to, just to, to be just to be clear on this, like part of well, a Macron's uh, popularity was quite low <laughs> before these protests started, so. Although I very much disagree with the tactics and, frankly, also a lot of the aims of the Yellow Vest, I, I am very sympathetic to um, their situation because when we talk about the gas tax only increasing a small amount, it was a little bit of the straw that broke the camel's back because what has happened in France is that Macron was elected in order to really reform the economy because the French economy desperately needs it. However, he did it in a pretty spectacularly bad way, which is that he wanted to cut taxes, but at the same time, he wanted to stay within the EU budgetary rules. So consequently, instead of rolling out the entire fiscal reform, which would have benefited essentially everyone except for like well-off pensioners, instead of that, he front-loaded some of the tax increases on like the working class and middle class. And then he put through the decrease in the wealth tax and like capital gains and dividends and interest. And now while I frankly, support the decrease in the wealth tax and the investment taxes because they were really, really poorly structured taxes. You you can't expect that you're going to, on the one hand, make lives harder for people who are struggling to get by, make it easier for the wealthy, at the same time that you're cutting services in a lot of suburban and exurban areas, transportation services. You're also cutting um, childcare services. So you're making people have to drive more. So you've increased people's taxes while you've made the wealthier wealthy, and you've now forced people to drive more. And then you're like, now we're going to increase fuel prices. <laughs> I'm not shocked that people are like, what the F? <laughs> That's reasonable. I think that, unfortunately, though, there isn't a great solution to this. I mean, yeah. the solution would have been not to cut taxes for the rich and raise taxes for middle class and poor people. And maybe if you're going to raise fuel taxes, then you should bring in some subsidies they, to help people, you know, become less reliant on gas and or help them in other ways. I agree with that. I mean, I do think that you can't increase fuel prices and not do something to help the lower middle classes and working class. Completely agree. I really do think like I, 
the France's problem is that the lack of economic growth and investment. And so you cannot have these massive taxes on wealth and investment. However, they should not have rolled out the fiscal plan as they have. That was just very, very poorly done. And I mean, I think it offers a lesson, too, as we head into this very serious climate change situation where everyone's talking about raising, you know, carbon taxes. And that's the only solution to get people off of um, off of gas and oil uh, is is the reaction to to doing that and taking that kind of action, I think, has to be taken very deliberatively. Um, Car- carbon taxes are, are incredibly regressive. And this is what we've seen in France is that the, they, they really do land very much on the poor. If you look at w- who would pay a carbon tax in the United States, for instance, um, you know, the, the areas of the country that have the most carbon heavy electricity are places, you know, uh, poor areas of like Appalachia and Alabama and places like that, where, where is, they have very dirty electricity. Their electricity prices would go through the roof. These are people who cannot afford, um, you know, to pay more for, for their electricity. Whereas, you know, the nuclear power and the, Solar power and the wind power is is all in relatively richer areas. Yeah, you could. It's hard. This is a tough problem nut to crack. Yeah, you, you know it's fascinating because the the transition to green energy, as everyone knows, is expensive. Right, we're not at a at a scale where the 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 actual technologies cost anywhere close to a comparable thing to internal combustion engines and the like. And it it seemed to me like. The, the mistake in France is just that. It's a failure of strategy. They could have uh, f- thought this through a little more. And I'm mystified as to why, uh, you know, it, it, we call them a, uh, one thing, a group like the wealthy. But if you're going to if you're if you could you could stand up and take one for the team on something like that and and get so much good PR from shifting the costs of a transition like this to the people who are already wealthy enough to not really care about an increase in gas tax. It just strikes me as a complete failure of imagination on the policy front. I do agree with that, although unfortunately, because of like previous tax policy under leaders like Hollande, you've actually pushed like there's been a huge exodus of wealthy people from France because of taxation. So it's, it's, it is tricky, but I do agree with you that when we think about moving towards renewable energy when we're trying to decrease consumption. If you're going to be a technocrat, you have to actually think everything through. And I think this is where, unfortunately, Macron's lack of experience is really showing. And also his focus a little bit too much on international policy to a certain extent and not as much on domestic policy, because part of the reason he wanted to abide by the um, EU like fiscal rules is because he wants to push for more greater, like, greater EU integration. But it's like, well, A, if you looked at <laughs> the Eurozone or the EU, like you're, you're not getting significant integration anytime soon. And also, you're not going to be able to push for that if you're not president anymore. (laughs) One thing I thought was, um, I don't know if nice is the right word, but interesting about the Yellow Vest protesters was, unlike populist movements we've seen in other countries, there's no... um, it was like a purely economic protest. There's not, I mean, I think on the far right and the far left in the country, both sort of tried to take credit for what was going on or own the protest, but it really was more of a grassroots thing. And there wasn't really, there's not really um, like a big Trump-like face, you know, to put right. over they, they all weren't. They weren't political. It wasn't in political, that exactly. Just, yeah. yeah, this yeah. is economic. It is interesting. And also, I mean, it was basically organized through social media 
And Facebook again. Yeah, yeah. But I but I will say, like, I mean, there are definitely far right and far left elements, which is also like not overly surprising in France because the far like the the right in France is not like in, in a lot of and often it's not necessarily like the right when we think of in the US when we think of like the Tea Party movement. I mean, both the far right and the far left in France want more government. Nobody wants less government. Wild. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's nerd out a little bit about the yield curve because people have been talking about this a lot in the past week or so. Um, partly because the okay, Annie, you're going to have to explain this very slowly for people who don't understand. But the yield on five-year government bonds was lower than the yield on two-year government bonds, and that means that. The world is about to come to an end. Right. So basically, when you're thinking of the yield curve, it basically you're just thinking that you go from if I'm loaning money overnight or if I'm loaning money over 30 years, I'm obviously going to charge normally a higher rate over 30 years. And so if the yield curve is just plotting all of those different interest rates and in a normal environment, that's going to be an upward sloping yield curve. When people talk about yield curve inversion, that's when short, shorter term rates are going to be higher than long-term rates. Now, normally when we talk about yield curve inversion, normally when we talk about yield curve inversion, we're talking about the spread between the 10-year and the 2-year or the 10-year and the 3-year. This kind of all of a sudden being really interested in the 5-year and the 2-year is a little odd to me because no one's ever really interested in that spread. Exactly. I think we're we're, we're picking random bits of the yes. curve and getting excited about fives twos is not what you look at. Um, I like, there was someone on Twitter got getting very excited about the spread between the five year and the ten year tips, like inflation protected. I was like, no, we like the reason why people care about the yield curve is because there's one thing in particular which actually has done a pretty good job of of predicting recessions, which is the spread between the one year and the ten year. Um, when that goes negative. Every time it does that, like there's a recession. And when it doesn't do that, there isn't a recession. But even then, it can take over two years between when it first goes negative and when the recession happens. And the recession is often not a very big recession. And the my favorite one of all is that after the yield curve inverts, off, on average, the stock market goes up by 20%. Right. Now, so, you know, this, yeah. It's, it's completely true. I mean, if you kind of look historically over the last like 50 years, yes, it has been true that if the between the, when the spread between the 10 and the 2, when or when that part of the curve inverts, then yes, you are going to usually at some point see a recession, but it is often, it's, there's no real clear pattern in terms of the timing. And it also 
doesn't we don't no one really knows whether it's just an indicator or whether it's causal. You can make arguments on both sides. But so what's the argument for it being causal? Can you explain like intuitively why would there be? Why would it cause a recession? Okay, well, I, do I, had, I, I called my friend at Bloomberg to explain this to me because I find it all just baffling and boring. But so he explained, <laughs> and this is how I took it. So this is my layman's translation, and then Anna can talk forever. Um, so if 10-year interest rates are lower than two-year interest rates, it means people are bummed out about the future. Yeah, I mean, well, no, and I just and that's that's it. And then the more bummed out they are, the more that they sort of feeds into possibly a self fulfilling prophecy of a recession. But it could be as long as so. Basically, what we're seeing, in in a sense, is is that like if if there was a lot of demand for long term investments, then there would be a lot of issuance at the ten year end of the spectrum, and you know, and that would mean that the price would come down because there was so much um you know issuance so much supply and that would bring the yields up and then you would have a normal yield curve so when the yield curve goes flat when when the yield out, out there at 10 years is depressed that's kind of a sign that people aren't really trying to issue a bunch of debt at those maturities they're not really investing that far ahead is that the is so that part, the no part well partly the idea is that it's about expectations and if you're an investor and you're saying well if i think that the economy is going to be slowing which then i actually think that the rates are going to be coming down i want to invest long term so i can lock in higher rates now I don't want to invest short term because then I'm that's going to mature and then I'm going to have to try to reinvest at lower rates. So then you're going to have more appetite on the longer end of the curve, more buying that's going to push yields down. That's the most kind of traditional idea of how you think about this. I do think it's interesting to look about what's actually happened this year in terms of the flattening of the curve, because earlier in the year, you basically had both the long term and the short term increasing as Fed rates were increasing and expectations of growth and inflation were increasing with the shorter end increasing more rapidly. But then what kind of happened was the short term basically kind of stabilized and the long term started to decline. And that is a little bit of a negative sign because, well, it's actually a pretty negative sign because it means that investors are really becoming much more pessimistic about future growth. Sorry, I'm talking a ton, but going back to the idea of why this also can potentially be causal, it's both because it can affect people's actions, obviously, in terms of both businesses and consumers. But also, you have to think a little bit about banking, too. To a certain extent, if, if this really starts to become an issue, if you have when you know banks, because they're borrowing short term and investing long term, that if banks are becoming so less profitable, then that can um, hurt the credit markets. But but go back to the, the, the let's just finish here, because it, at some point, I think everyone's brain is going to melt. But um the businesses and consumers on the on the on the fundamental level if the yield curve is flat if it costs normal people no more money to borrow on the, in the long term than it does in the short term like my intuition is that's good it kind of encourages people to make long term investments and that should be a good thing how is that a bad thing because it's the idea of what it says about how investors think about the future economy. Okay, so it, so again, like this is just like an expectations thing. Right. It's like it's it's a, it's what the financial markets are expecting rather than actually 
changing the behavior of um but then because of, of businesses and individuals because you know if you're running a business you are following all of these things so if there is a lot of indication that all of these either actual like economists and experts as well as the seemingly investors themselves seem to think that you know profit growth is going to be declining you're maybe slightly less likely to invest or maybe slightly less likely to hire. There are things that these can have real world consequences. Also, there's, okay. you know, the fact that we were just we just went through a, a long period of corporate gorging on cheap debt. All this stuff eludes me because it's too complex. But I think there must be a factor in there that, you know, um, some investors are looking at we may have some impending bankruptcies on our hands because of the free-for-all that just happened because it was almost free money for a while. That is certainly true, although then it's like, this is why rates are just such a, I think, kind of fascinating but kind of bizarro is that because the idea is that, you know, the rates are going to increase, the Fed's only going to keep increasing rates, rates as the economy gets, you know, continues to get better and as inflation and wage growth increases. So in theory, if we really did start to have a downturn, that's when we would start lowering rates. But then this is the other, like, one other thing to think about is that when you have um, you also can have issues about like if long term rates are really low, then you can have less people wanting to then you, at that once they become low, once more people have bought the long term and decreased it, then you can have less appetite for that. So that can affect things. So uh, rates are definitely complicated. But the most important thing is just that this is really an expectation. game. You know, what's you know, what's interesting, too, is we, we didn't touch on this. Uh, my girlfriend's a real estate broker in New York City and, uh, you know, on the mid to high end. And uh, this has been the hardest there year. There is no she low said. end in New York. She, th- it is the slowest year that they can remember. No one is buying, uh, you know, million plus real estate, you know, uh, compared to previous years. The market's dead. And the, you know, the the ask on sales, uh, you know, it's the bids are coming in double digit percentages below what mm-hmm. the ask is. So there's, uh, the you know, the, Rates are playing into, you know, borrowing for, you know, what's happening in the housing market as well. So at some point in the in a future episode of Slate Money, I definitely want to talk about this question of um, the correlation of mortgage rates and house prices, because people have opinions about that. But we don't have time for it this week. Tune in some other week for for a discussion (laughs) of that. I think I think what we should do is have a numbers round. That's what we should do because we've had we've had too much talk of yield curves. Let's let's talk quick fun numbers. Duff, did you bring a number this week? I did bring one. It is 400 billion. That is uh Facebook's market cap dipped below 400 billion this month. I took a quick check. It was over 500 billion a year ago. Uh I am no stock picker, but I think that the troubles that this company is in you know, up to and including stuff like who wants to sell, you know, are they going to have a WhatsApp or an Instagram acquisition on the horizon? Who wants to sell to this company right now and say, I, I've joined this team? I think that for the foreseeable future, $400 billion is going to be a bit of a top for these guys. Emily. My number is $12. And Anna might like this. Um, 
Michigan is slated to raise its minimum wage um, if if this law goes into effect in January to $12 an hour um, by 2022. But what's happening now in the state is the lame duck legislator legislature has um, rammed through basically this gutting of the minimum wage law. So um, what they want to do is, well, they want to kill it. (laughs) They don't want to raise the minimum wage at all. But um, in order to keep voters from actually getting to decide on minimum wage and paid sick leave, what they've done is they pretended to pass a minimum wage hike. And then in the lame duck session, now they've put through this bill that would just gut it and um, essentially raise uh, the minimum wage by a few cents a year until 2030. And um, it's a real shame. I'm going to jump in on this one. and Jump. I'm, I'm going to have a $68 billion number, which is not the number I was thinking I was going to come in. But this is a new report that just came out, which looked at all of the minimum wage hikes, which have happened in places like California and New York and Seattle, and did some really genuinely good research on how much more people are getting paid as a result. And the answer is $68 billion per year is how much wages have gone up for low-wage workers who are affected by the minimum wage increases. That's fabulous, I think. I mean, it's not as much money as Facebook lost in market cap, but it's pretty good news. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't real. (laughs) Yeah, this is real. This is real. Yeah. Um, my Anna, my number? number is $92.5 billion. That was Huawei's total revenue uh, in 2017. And I just bring this up, as I'm sure everybody kind of knows, is that the um, CFO of Huawei was arrested in Canada and is looking and is potentially going to be extradited to the United States. And I bring up that number just because I think some people may not be as familiar with the company to realize like this is one of the biggest companies, not only in China, but in you know the world. This is a big company. This is a major company. This would be like Tim Cook or Sundar Pichai going to China and then getting arrested. Like this is and, a big deal. And I have definitely been hearing of American executives who are Canceling flights to China for that reason, they are worried. Or even that, Japan, like, you can't even go to Japan. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, every other country is arresting and jailing CEOs, just not the U.S. Well, no, we're the ones who are arrested. Yeah, not the our CEOs. own. Well, because although to, to be fair, it is entirely possible that Huawei was involved in sanctions violations, so we don't know. But um, I think that's it for us this week, unless you are a Slate Plus member, in which case, stay tuned for some McKinsey gossip. Um, Otherwise, many thanks to Duff McDonald for coming on to Slate Money this week. Many thanks to Max Jacobs for producing and stitching together audio from two different cities. Um, Thanks to my friend Megan here at Axios who made the whole thing possible. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.